Our scripture reading today continues in our Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Today we will read from chapter 6, verses 6 through 8, verse 10, verse 13 through 19. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you. And make your land desolate so no one can live in it. To whom am I, can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, you will not listen. Therefore you hear, you nations, you who are witnesses, observe what will happen to them. Hear, you earth, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their schemes, because they have not listened to my words and have rejected your law. Fine. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you heard the term risk aversion? This sermon is about rest aversion. In the core passage of this series on Jeremiah, which is the core reading for today's sermon, through the prophet Jeremiah comes a call for call to people who are standing at a crossroads and a call for them to choose the right path, the way of goodness. And if they do, they'll inherit a promise and you will find rest for your souls. And you will find rest for your souls. I have this strange feeling that I've heard someone speak those words before. Does it sound familiar? Here's where it's helpful sometimes to have a Bible with cross-references in it. Those little notes that tell you when a verse in Scripture is directly related to another verse in Scripture. The note on Jeremiah 6.16 will send you 
all the way to the New Testament. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, where nearly 600 years later, a prophet named Jesus makes a similar invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Of all the gospel writers, Matthew is especially mindful of how the events in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth fulfill the prophecies of the prophet Jeremiah. Furthermore, it's in Matthew chapter 16, verse 14, that we learn that Jesus reminds people of Jeremiah so much that they mistake his presence for being a reappearance of this ancient prophet. Jesus says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, and this is only in the Matthew account, Jeremiah. In chapter 6 of Jeremiah, we see that Jeremiah issues this invitation to God's people to return to God and find rest for their souls. Jesus issues this same invitation as God with us. Jeremiah, it comes as God's word through the prophet. But from Jesus, it comes to us from God. Offering us rest for our souls if we would only come to him in all of our weariness and allow him to unburden us as we enter life under his protective reign. Rest for our souls must be important. But at first glance, doesn't it seem so simple, so ordinary, perhaps even a bit lazy? What are Jeremiah and Jesus inviting us into? Well, rest always has an immediate dimension to it, for sure. It is a contextual reality. At the end of a day, we need rest, and that will include this day. But picture a scene of resting. Go ahead, close your eyes. Just picture what resting looks like in your world, in your view. Whatever you're picturing, you know it. Life has a tendency to be like the opposite of that. For Jeremiah's fellow citizens in Jerusalem, they were caught in the vice grip of international tension amid rumors of war. And they were suffering under oppressive internal leadership. Under these conditions, rest is what you long for, but you can barely even imagine. For those who heard Jesus speak those words, centuries later, history may well have been repeating itself as it usually does. Now, under Roman oppression. But rest has a deeper dimension in Scripture as well. It has a deeper meaning in God's story from the very beginning. 
in creation. God rested on the seventh day and called the creation good. Throughout scripture, rest and goodness are intertwined. It is when we are resting that we can contemplate the goodness of God's creation. Rest is the one Sabbath day a week where neither our survival nor our supervisor can make us work. Rest is the one year in God's Torah where every 50 years when the jubilee sound would ring out and everyone would get a break, the land itself would be renewed, the slave would be freed, debts would be forgiven, and everyone's, everyone's well-being secured. In short, rest is shorthand for God's good life. It's the promise of the promised land. It's a code word for life in God's kingdom under the reign of a good God. It's life in all its created fullness. Vida plena. Abundant life. The experience of God's goodness in human society, not only for a privileged few, but for all of God's creation. And on the eve of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, I can say that rest is more I have a dream than I need a vacation. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. What's going on here? Why not? Perhaps it's that same old, same old. Human beings, in their fallenness, being committed to something different than God's goodness. Have you ever seen that happen? Have you ever been the one who would choose that other thing than God's goodness? I have. In this text from Jeremiah 6, we see, as we see throughout Jeremiah, a particularly uh, very clear description of the anatomy of falling deeper into sin and away from God's good life. And in this particular text, the particular sin is greed. Verse 13, from the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. The society has become one of acquisition, of making sure that regardless of what God had set out as the good life approach to everyone's well-being, that everyone from the least to the greatest is trying to get what they can for themselves, and they can't see a stop to it. More is always better. You ever lived in a society like that? I know some of you, maybe you lived in other parts of the world and stuff, and, and you experienced that. Certainly not here. Greed? More and more 
and more and more and more, and when does it stop? Greed for gain moves people, both individuals and societies, in the opposite direction from God's good life. It's a temptation for all of us, no matter how powerful we are. Unchecked, it leads some of the best and the brightest to dishonesty and deceitfulness in pursuit of their own self-interest. And Jeremiah's anatomy of this process of falling deeper and deeper into sin identifies this, because the second half of that verse, it says, prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. Think about two particular headline stories in our society right now. Both of which involve people of privilege who seek greater and greedier gain for themselves. One's been going on for quite a while, but we're starting to see it play out, and that is the college admissions scandal. These are wealthy people. These are people who have everything our society values. And yet their greed has, has led them into deceitfulness. And then just recently, the baseball sign-stealing scandal. I'm sure the Mariners would never be tempted. At least our record says that we would never be tempted in that direction. Amen. We got an amen, right? And of course, the Houston Astros being, you know, that, that, that team that we could just never live up to, we find out that, oh, wow. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Like, seriously, again, those players, the absolute best players in the league, do they really need to cheat? No. But once you start, it is so hard to stop. And why is that? Well, the anatomy continues to show. It led people in Jeremiah's day to downplay. That's the next step. Once you've gotten into deceitfulness, you now downplay any evidence of it, that it's not as serious as one might think. Verse 14, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. It's a slippery slope. We deal with our conscience through downplaying. It's not really that bad. I know so many people who have done worse. It's not hurting anyone. By the way, really test that. That's a favorite in our society right now. Victimless, uh, basically unethicalness, right? It's like there's never a victim. But in God's good life, when God has this vision for human society where there's so many interrelationships, more than really our wisdom can really take into account. Does every moral decision like not have a consequence on someone somewhere the biblical view would remind us that there's more to it than meets the eye blind to the consequences we simply declare to ourselves and others that there aren't any and then it gets to the fourth level in verse 15 these are hard words to read Sometimes you wonder, like, wow, are these words really in the Bible? 
Jeremiah says, are they ashamed of their detestable conduct? No. They don't have any shame at all. They don't even know how to blush. We get lost in our sin. More specifically, we lose our sense of healthy shame. Fuller uh, seminary professor Lewis Smeads uh, wrote a book on, on healthy and unhealthy shame. Unhealthy shame is that shame that, that keeps you from being all that God created you to be in your created goodness. But there is such a thing as healthy shame, and that is when we are living a life that is going against that good thing that God has created. Healthy shame is God's way of putting in our conscience this sense that calls us back to our better selves, to our true selves. But down the road, along this anatomy of falling deeper and deeper into sin, we lose our sensitivity to that. Here's why it matters that we confess our sins on a regular basis. I had a conversation again uh, last week, but an ongoing conversation with people in the life of faith about is it still, does it still matter to confess our sins even if we're struggling with the same sins over and over again? Does God really want us to, to come to him when we pray our prayer of confession, even if it's like the hundredth or even the hundred thousandth time we've had, we have to come? Here's why it matters. Because by confessing our sins, we're staying close to the intersection of the crossroads. We are closer to where we may see, take notice of, and maybe even have the will to step into that place of invitation, to walk down that path towards God's good life. The further we go along the way and practice deception and lose our sense of right and wrong, the harder it is to know where we stand, and the fainter that call will be. Using the illustration of the crossroads, confession keeps us close to this intersection, where choosing God's life is a legitimate, immediate option. The crossroads we face daily is one in which we have two roads set before us. One leads to a life of goodness and rest for our souls. And the other is a path that leads, well, it's a path of our own design and desires, but it follows in a direction in which we've turned away from God in rebellion. It's not oriented toward rest, but rather it's an outflowing of restlessness. Now, there's something timeless about standing at these crossroads. It was relevant in Jeremiah's day, in the 6th century before Christ. It was relevant in Jesus' day, when he said to the people, Come to me, and I will give you rest. And it was relevant 400 years later, when one of the greatest spiritual sayings in Christian history was written by St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest Augustine wrote these words reflecting on his own journey through life in his confessions. He had found his rest in the Lord after spending so many precious, anxious years searching for God knows what. 
of restless heart. Seeking goodness and meaning in all of the wrong places, from sensual pleasures to intellectual curiosity. Augustine reminds us that a dimension of the rest that God offers us is the end to a life of fruitless, anxious searching. When I hear those words as a representative of my generation, I think to a quote from a song that was inspired by a visit to a cathedral in Spain. Peter Gabriel's 80s hit song, In Your Eyes, later recorded by Christian singer Nicole Nordman. The resolution of all the fruitless searches. Rest. God's good life. The resolution of all the fruitless searches. Well, how does God respond to our restlessness? Our hesitation to embrace the good life set out for us. Our outright turning and heading out on a path going completely in an opposite direction. God responds with lament. God responds with judgment. And ultimately, God responds with Jesus. God responds with lament. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, and as we go through this series, we will see more and more that God's heart is on display, and it goes through Jeremiah's heart, and it flows out in tears. You can't journey very far without noticing Jeremiah's expression of sorrow over the restless rebellion of God's people. It's the sadness of seeing someone willfully go down a path toward destruction, the longing for them to choose God's good life, and yet they're not. When I think of this lament, my mind is always drawn to the movie A River Runs Through It. A movie great in the eyes of fishermen, still the greatest fly fishing movie ever made. But one of particular interest to Presbyterians as well, since the movie is based on an autobiographical account by Norman MacLean, who grew up as a pastor's kid, his father being the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Missoula, Montana. I actually interviewed for a job there once. I'll tell you a story later. Robert Redford, in this movie, directs a young Brad Pitt in the role of Paul McLean, the younger brother of Norman. Paul is a newspaper reporter in Helena, and his lifestyle of gambling and drinking isn't approved of by his religious parents. But more importantly, especially for this sermon and the message of Jeremiah, is that it's leading him on a slow and steady path to his own demise. He needs to be bailed out of jail after he gets into a fight. His gambling debts begin to mount, and powerful enemies are watching his every move. His family knew he was heading for trouble. His parents counseled him. His brother Norman invited him to move out to Chicago with, with he and his, and his new wife to escape the danger and get a new start. But Paul was resolute headstrong and dead set on continuing along the path of his choosing. And watching the movie, you're just waiting for the bad news to come. And when it does, you just feel sick with sadness and you lament along with his loved ones. What could we have done? Why didn't he choose a different path at the crossroads? 
Well, God also responds with judgment. It's important to recognize that there are victims here in the way Jeremiah shares God's word with the people. Verse, verses 6 through 8. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. Oppression is a key word that means there are people being oppressed. There are victims here all throughout society. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness on others. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wombs are ever before me. Take warning, Jerusalem. You know, some of the most popular stories in our culture are of people making bad choices, restlessly rebelling and being brought to justice. Police dramas, courtroom dramas, some of the longest running series in the history of television. Have you ever watched a police drama? Ever? I mean, raise your hand. I want to take a poll. Anyone? Okay, that, that's what I expected, I, but I wondered. You know what I'm talking about. So you can probably envision this scene that you see over and over again. There's a scene when a family member is at the crossroads, wondering if they should keep the crimes of a loved one secret or reveal them to the police. Perhaps at the initial interview, they held back the information because they couldn't imagine doing something that brings any type of pain to their loved one. But in the course of the plot of that episode, they become aware of the victims, of the damage that their loved one is doing to others, and they choose to do what it takes to stop the injustice and bring mercy to the victims. God loves people. But because he also loves the ones being oppressed, because he loves the ones being injured by violence, those who are being decimated by destruction, who are made ill by the society's sickness, God will say, enough is enough, and intervene with righteous judgment. God responds to our rest aversion with lament and judgment, but ultimately also through Jesus. Through Jesus and his universal invitation to every human being on the planet, an invitation into God's good life, along with grace upon grace, always open no matter what. Because we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In spite of the restless rebellion of God's people, in the days of Jeremiah, Jesus, and even this January in human history, in spite of our restless wanderings, all the ways we get caught up walking our own path in the opposite direction, guided by greed, practicing deception, taking part in the oppression of others, Jesus' words cut through the chaos like the father's love for the prodigal child in the faraway land, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Through Jesus, God continues to care, to intervene and invite. Chance after chance. Jesus' offer stands 
every day for all humanity. For you. For me. Rest assured. 